when we think about what it means to be an individual in Whitehead's cosmology, a human individual, an I, I am already a community of occasions of experience, right? And maintaining my integrity as an individual requires maintaining the integrity of the community of me, right? From moment to moment. There's a profound lesson in that we can generalize from just the psychology of maintaining a sense of personal identity as the community of me. We can analogize that to human societies at large and say, okay, how do we maintain this together? A shared sense of identity and the sorts of cross-cultural dialogue that you're engaging in with people in China who want more me and people in America who are so sick of the self. <laughs> I think that's the sort of dialectical engagement that will allow us to figure out how to hold the tension. Matthew Siegel is assistant professor at the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he teaches courses on German idealism and process philosophy for the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program. He blogs regularly on an oft-viewed website called Footnotes to Plato, that's footnotestoplato.com, and is the author of a well-known book, Physics of the World's Soul, Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology, published in 2019. He's known to all of us in the process community as a key figure at the intersection of philosophy, spirituality, and science. One of the many things you're going to learn from Matt Siegel is it is possible to think cosmologically, cosmopolitanly, and locally, and caringly, all at the same time. And that if we can think that way and feel that way, we can be nourished by the depth of the past, and that includes tradition, and by the deepest hopes for the future. And he's going to give us guidance along all those lines. Enjoy. Matt, we, last time we talked, and I think the podcast has come out, and so that was our first podcast. And I think at the end, we decided we might like to give a try at taking some of what we talked about and turning it to contemporary cultural, political, geopolitical considerations and mm -hmm. some of the fundamental issues in the world, not just global climate change, but the ever-present threat of nuclear war and economic inequities, the debilitating side of consumer culture, spiritually, mm -hmm. you name it, and see if we could find ways that, that your interests and, and mine as well can help illuminate and even provide guidance. Yeah. So I'd like to hear today from you. I just would like for you to reflect as best you can, and I'll join you. And the first one uh, is the culture wars in America. So you're in Northern California, in a very liberal setting, I, I assume. Yeah. In which case, you may be kind of immersed in one side of those cultural wars, but not exactly in conversation with the other side of those culture wars. But I won't speak for you. I'll, I'll ask you, how do the culture wars affect you? And how do you experience them? Yeah. So it's true. I'm in uh, Northern California, which, while a lot of urban areas are, you know, especially liberal and, and tend to be more progressive and 
Uh, that might be a function of the increased diversity in urban centers. But yeah, the Bay Area is probably at the top of the list in terms of the most uh, left-leaning, progressive areas in the United States and California itself, you know? So it's like a bubble within a bubble uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the political culture in this area. But I do still try really hard to remain in dialogue, you know, mostly online with people mm -hmm. who disagree, who live elsewhere, maybe in a rural community. Um, I grew up in South Florida and Florida is quite a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre place. Just a mix of so many different cultures and ethnicities and, and political orientations. People who have fled Central and South America and Cuba and Haiti, and, and it's quite a um, cauldron down there. And um, I've noticed through the Trump years that a lot of my friends, high school friends, have drifted in that direction, which is upsetting, you know. But I, I've done my best to try to understand that. And I think <clears throat> from, you know, my own politics, while I'm left-leaning, I'm left-leaning in the Bernie Sanders direction rather than the Hillary Clinton direction, if you could even say that she's left, maybe more of a centrist or whatever. And so I have had plenty of opportunities to disagree with other people who think of themselves as progressives about the best way to address both some of the cultural issues that divide the country and some of the economic disparities, how best to address them and so on. And so while, you know, yeah, I'm in this bubble within a bubble in the most progressive area in the United States, I think there are different ways of being progressive and different attitudes that orient one in that sort of a political conversation. And so... Actually, I'd say most of my engagement is not with Trump supporters, but with people who are generally vote Democratic, but have a different sense of what's maybe pragmatic or lesser of two evils type of approach. But, you know, after the Sanders campaign, the primary campaign failed in 2016 and 2020, um, you know, for the last two years, I've been really searching for a political home and not finding it particularly within the, what I call the corporate duopoly in the United States. Third parties are generally systematically marginalized and excluded from debates, from media coverage. And so it's really hard to find ways to shift the conversation, to talk about the issues in a way that's not just fitting into the very narrow box of acceptable discourse that Democrats and Republicans would prefer to keep it in. So yeah, I mean, that's just just to lay out my own context. So I'm probably much the same boat as you are, but I am in a context where I have many face-to-face -face meetings with people that voted for Trump. And within my own family, there are those divisions. Yeah. And so there's been kind of a civil war inside my head <laughs> and inside my family. Yeah. But we don't talk about the Civil War. Uh, our way of managing it is to avoid the subject. As you know, I'm, uh, I'm a kind of semi-musician. And, and I play music at a little country restaurant I will play tonight called Toad Suck Bucks Restaurant. <laughs> and we play pop country acoustic. And all of the folks that come to hear me, 85%, 
will have voted for Trump. And during a break, I'll go down to the table. I've got to know them because I've been doing this for several years now. And I tell you, if we avoid politics, we just have so much that we love about each other. <laughs> you know, I mean, in particular music. And so it's made me wonder if there's a way to negotiate these differences that builds upon some of the actually some of the joys actually not not just the suffering but the joys and then you can turn to understanding the conflicts not not just the differences but the conflicts but from a foundation of mutual trust at some level at some level so that's just where i am too i have tended to uh, personally to avoid the term progressive as a name for myself, it's, it's because sometimes that becomes sloganeering and, and kind of arrogant to my mind. Um, you know, I'm progressive. How about you? <laughs> Who's going to say, I'm not progressive? <laughs> so, you know, it puts people in a corner. But um, so I'm too looking for a political home and don't exactly find it. You know, one thing that strikes me, Matt, is the appeal of liberal democracy in the human psyche today. The appeal of the idea that individuals have a kind of right to express their opinion, to develop their potential as individuals and as communities in its relation to nationhood. So you see Ukraine, for example, the Ukrainians want to be Ukrainian and they want to celebrate that kind of cultural identity and they want to do it in Western European terms uh, that are not don't have an authoritarian government. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of that, that alliance of liberal democracy and nationalism in light of the larger needs of the world today. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, lots of, <laughs> it's hard to know where to begin, but um, I, I think, uh, you know, what occurred to me while you were speaking in the, just in the context of the United States for a second, and then I'll, you know, talk about nationalism elsewhere. Whitehead says societies, and he means generally, metaphysically, a society can refer to humans or, you know, anything. But in the context of societies in general, a society only remains a society if it continues to ingress some dominant characteristic that defines it as such. In the context of the United States, I think it's safe to say we are the most diverse democracy in the world. I may be wrong about that, but it, we're, let's just say one of the most. There are many different ethnicities and people, uh, lots of hyphens in this country. And so the question becomes, is the founding myth of the United States attractive enough and uh, alluring enough to allow us to remain a single society with a national identity. I'm increasingly uncertain about whether or not that is possible. I have my ideals and what I wish were possible, but I don't know if there is a way forward for the 350 or whatever it is million people that make up this body politic to continue to exist as a, to coexist as one self-governing society. You know, when the Constitution was framed, it was all designed by very wealthy white landowning men to protect the privilege of wealthy white landowning men. 
But one of the ideals, despite that clear bias, was uh, a more local form of governance and, and you know, states' rights and um, min minimal power given to the federal government. And over the centuries, the federal government has gotten very large. And for most people, political engagement means voting every four years for the president and maybe some senators and congresspeople. Way fewer people are involved in state and way fewer even than that are involved in local politics, which I think is the exact opposite of what we would need in a functional democracy. And so as much as I, you know, so I'm here, this is someone who's, who was a supporter of Bernie Sanders and his platform, which would not have made the federal government smaller, right? And so it's not like I don't understand those who would want to use the power of the federal government to make people on the margins, whether that's because of class or race or whatever, to lift them up. But when I look at the cultural divisions, it's not clear to me that the federal government, uh, and when I look at the federal government and its dysfunction, it's not clear to me that that entity, that institution is functioning, and it's not clear to me that it can be salvaged at this point. I was involved with the group who, who were trying to drum up support for a kind of constitutional convention to try to change things at the level of the constitutional framework. And uh, the more I thought about that, the more it made me nervous, because if you call a convention, the conservatives are going to get right in there too and try to change things to suit their, their interests. And so do we want to open up that can of worms? I don't know. At this point, I think in light of everything I've already said and in light of the ecological crisis and the need to shift to a more bioregional understanding of how we govern our human activities, uh, I really think that the answers, the way forward is to focus more locally on how to govern ourselves. And that doesn't mean no federal government, but it might mean to have to let go of this ideal that somehow all of our cultural differences can be settled at the federal level through legislation. I think we need to learn how to differentiate cultural issues from political issues where government's role is to protect the rights, legal rights of people and that we're all equal under the law. But that's a minimal role and that a lot of the things that get so politicized now and lead to such intense culture wars are really not the purview of certainly not the federal government. I mean, maybe locally. And of course, you know, I do worry about marginalized communities living in parts of the country where there is a history of racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever. And that's a huge problem and I don't have a solution for it, but I just don't think that, uh, the United States as a nation really is going to be able to hold together. And I don't say that lightly. I just think it's the realistic thing to say. Now, in terms of other countries like Ukraine or, you know, Israel gets brought up a lot in this context where is Israel a democracy or an ethnostate? It's hard to be both, at least if you think about the principles involved. There's a reason that uh, we might want to support people who have a shared sense of identity who are being <laughs> attacked. You know, they have a right to, to autonomy, to have a society where the people who identify with that particular ethnicity or religion or whatever can self-govern 
and not be threatened by others who might want to do them harm. And I think that kind of national identity shouldn't automatically be vilified. You know, that's what human beings do. We, we form communities based on shared history, ancestry, custom, and so on. Liberal democracy has tried to articulate this view of something called universal human rights, which is very hard to be critical of until you consider the ways in which what it means to be a human being has often been narrowly defined in Eurocentric terms. What it means to be rational has been narrowly defined in Eurocentric terms, in male white terms, basically. So a lot of people feel like they don't identify with what the West calls human, right? And so there's a need to think, I think, more radically, in a more radically pluralistic way about that. Human rights are super important. And there's a lot of buy-in from around the world in that. But, you know, look at the sort of things that are coming out of Russia. And I'm no fan of Putin, obviously. But there's a sense in which the Eurasian cultural context is different enough from the Western cultural context that they're levying, levying critiques of what we call liberal humanism that are not all totally off base. So <laughs> there's a lot here, and I don't know exactly how to move forward except to try to cultivate opportunities to have conversations about the complexity and avoiding the sloganeering that you're talking about. There are precious few opportunities to have conversations about this stuff. So I'm glad that we can at least scratch the surface here. And we, we may have some people listening to this podcast that need to hear this discussion, want to hear this discussion, because they yearn for some kind of conversation. You've covered a lot of bases there, and I want to go back to the United States for a moment. Let's say that progressives realize that there can be legitimate critiques of big government, both in its bureaucracy and its, in its um, assumption of authority that is best left at a local level. So that would be the principle of subsidiarity championed by Catholics, for example, where if a decision is to be made, all things considered, find the local level where it can be made because that's where the people are. Yeah. And so let's say you're a progressive and, and you say, well, you know, there's some truth in that principle of subsidiarity. I, I, I do want to learn to think not just globally, but locally and, and, build up the local community where I am, and maybe that's kind of where the action is. And so it's local government to be sure, but civic organizations to be sure. What does progressivism look like when it accepts the principle of subsidiarity? What is it still about? It, because it, it's no longer about kind of big government solves all problems. It recognizes the distinctiveness and the importance of the local. What then makes it still progressive? Whitehead can help us here. Uh, <laughs> you know, he says, on the one hand, he'll say things like, the pure conservative is fighting against the essence of the universe. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, he'll warn, he doesn't use the term progressives, but you know, he means those who would want to um, seek to realize ideals in their present day society that have not been realized before to improve things. But he'll warn progressives that, you know, don't saw off the limb of the tree that you're sitting on. A lot of the social habits and the institutions 
that have developed over centuries and millennia are achievements as, of a kind of social order that if you try to just pretend like you could redesign society from the ground up, you might unleash chaos. So this is the problem with the, to paint in broad brush strokes, the liberal conception of the human being, you know, from like John Locke or something that we're just blank slates and we can be through education totally reconstructed in terms of our outlooks and our everything from our, you know, sexuality to our rationality, you know? And I think that's such a disembedded abstract conception of what it is to be a human being that the danger is this sort of liberal conception makes it seem like, oh, well, if only, you know, we could wipe the slate clean and start fresh, everything would be perfect and we'd have a utopia. And I think Whitehead's warning is that we're inheriting emotions and instincts and patterns from the past that shape who and what we are, and that there is no way to imagine that we could cut ourselves off from that and just reconstruct some ideal situation. As much as we might want to improve society, we have to do so from where we are, right? And not imagine we could bootstrap ourselves into a utopia. And sometimes revolutionary politics, progressive revolutionary politics, doesn't, I think, pay enough attention to the ways in which things could be much, much worse than they are. Uh, a response there, and then we'll just keep going. I appreciated your naming the things we inherit from the past that are part of our very existence in the present, uh, locally and, and other levels too. And you said emotions and customs and histories and cultural traditions. I think the conservative, the traditional conservative, wants to say we also acquire forms of wisdom. Hmm. You know, that, that the past bequeaths us wisdom traditions from which we can learn and we need to learn. So just a little aside here, um, among the debates in Islam today are debates between traditionalists and uh, progressives. And, and the prog progressives probably lean in the direction of uh, let's reconstruct the tradition in light of the new situation. And trad traditionally say, but let's reclaim and recover forms of wisdom in Islam that can nourish our lives. It's probably the same situation across the board, even here, that there's something in the heart of the conservative who says, Let, let's, let's remember and learn from the wisdom we can acquire. So this is um, what I heard you say was that the progressives are about adventure, openness to novelty, receptivity new, to new possibilities, good possibilities, wings, the wing side of life. And the conservative comes, comes back and says, but how about the roots? <laughs> Can you live with both roots and wings? Hmm. So back to Whitehead for a moment. You know, a lot of people associate Whitehead with uh, openness to novelty and a sense of adventure. And he was about that, to be sure. But I think he also had an appreciation of habit, repetition, re-embodying in the present what was in the past. He knew evolution is as, as needful of repetition as it is of openness to novelty if there's to be survival. So uh, does that 
spring forth any comments on your side of um, what's missing if we stress adventure alone. I guess yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Well, the tendency among the norm, I'll say, among progressives is to be um, kind of anti-religion. I mean, there are a few religious progressives, but that's the exception to the rule. Progressives tend to see religion as a source of much oppression and dogmatism and um, generally bad things. Now, one of the things that I notice quite frequently in many social justice movements is a kind of secularized deployment of an ethical stance that is fully derived from the axial age religious traditions. <laughs> and while some, in, some Christian institutions have not lived up to the teachings of Christ, right, obviously, there's a deeper religious impulse that is clearly, as far as I can tell, rooted in this Christian tradition mm -hmm. that many progressives who are fighting for social justice and racial justice and so on are unknowingly inheriting. <laughs> and even the whole Enlightenment critical tradition, which has tended to be so anti-religion, wouldn't be possible without this sort of axial age. And axial age is Carl Jasper's term for not just the, the, the Jewish prophets and the Greek philosophers, but you know, in, in China and India with Buddhism, there are examples of this as well of uh, a sense of individuals being able to gain a sense of a transcendent good that gives them a sense of the capacity to morally judge their society. And so it's a transcendent source of uh, putting one in contact with the good as the basis for critique of current social situations and, and, and the, the generally accepted mores of a society. That's what the axial religions in one sense are really all about. So and the enlightenment critique of religion and the present day social justice movements, I don't think could have occurred, could have emerged without this history, without this tradition informing it. Right. And so it's a secularized religious impulse. If you want to put it in that paradoxical way, I think if there were more recognition of this, there might be some hope for reconciliation among conservatives and progressives. Right. That might be one place where uh, bridges can begin to be built. But again, it's a complex conversation and there aren't many spaces for having complex conversations right now. You know, the, the biblical traditions, uh, in particular, the, the Hebrew Bible and more specifically, the prophetic tradition within the Hebrew Bible included within it self-critique. Hmm. That is a critique of the institutions of religion the prophetic critique of the institutions of religion, such that self-criticism of that kind became part of the tr tradition. And I'm, I myself wonder if the Enlightenment emphasis on, on critiquing religion doesn't itself carry the legacy in some way of the Hebrew Bible, the, particularly the prophetic tradition. Matt, let's turn to another question I, I have for you. In the, I want to talk about nationalism. Uh, not just in the U.S. context. When I first discovered process thought, it was in the con cultural context of a whole lot of people that were talking about being global citizens, the cosmopolitan consciousness. You know, I, I'm a citizen of the world, a citizen of the planet. And there's a little elitism there. You know, my consciousness is wider than your consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're going to have your head on straight, you're going to grow into the direction of this whip of consciousness, this cosmopolitanism. And part of the um, right-wing critique of liberal elites has been a critique of, of the cosmopolitan mindset and the presumption of it, maybe at the expense of the value of national identity of feeling part of a family with boundaries and customs and traditions distinguishable from other customs and traditions. So what do you think of that critique of cosmopolitan consciousness insofar as that consciousness can include a, a neglect of the need for localized national identities? Any thoughts on that? Oh yeah. Appreciate the way you're framing the question. And I think, uh, you know, I was, I was, saying earlier, I think, uh, you know, like Kant was, was a defender of a kind of cosmopolitan outlook, but his sense of what universal humanity was, was a very abstract and Eurocentric conception that made it seem like Africans and indigenous people in the Americas were not human, you know? And so that obviously isn't what most people who progressives who say they're cosmopolitan mean to affirm now. But there's this legacy of colonialism in the way this was articulated during the Enlightenment. And so I think on the one hand, of course, given our shared humanity, given our shared evolutionary origins, given the fact that we all inhabit a planet of finite resources, which is under threat, the, the, the functional ecosystems which maintain this planet and provide for our existence are under threat because of our industrial mode of, of activity on this planet. And so there are all these reasons that we need desperately to, I don't know, discover or create our shared sense of humanity that would be planetary, mm -hmm. uh, species level identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet each of us is born to a particular family in a particular place with its own unique history. We learn a language. Some of us learn multiple languages, but the language we speak at home with our parents and our closest family members is a core part of each of our identities. And so how do we balance the local with the planetary? How do we balance the uniqueness of each culture and ethnicity with our shared sense of humanity. Now, I'm biased because I've grown up in the context of a very liberal in the broad classical sense of the term society. And so I tend to think that individuality is an important value. And by individuality, I don't mean the typical like Lockean sense of a totally autonomous self. You know, sometimes when you read Locke, you get the sense that individuals just spring up fully formed out of the mud, like adult rational actors or something. Clearly individuality is something that, you know, the, the, the capacity to be a free responsible agent is something that takes decades of enculturation in the context of a family and a community that cares to cultivate that kind of value in someone and allows that individual to find their own way in life and is not forced to conform to 
what the community of origin demands of them. But that in itself, I'm, I have come to recognize this value of individuality is in, more, in some sense more or less culturally localized. And I can see how other communities, say more traditional communities, don't want to just give individuals free reign to do whatever they want because they look at American society and the sort of consumerism and hedonism or whatever and think, well, that's not an ideal society. Why would we value individuality above all else if that's what it leads to? And I say that's individualism, which is tied to consumerism and all these other things. Individuality, I think, need not necessarily go in that direction. But finding a way to value individuality as well as community uh, and making sure that even in those societies which are not part of the West, which are not liberal and don't share that political tradition, I think there's still some sense just on a human level that um, we might want to find ways of, through dialogue, not through invasion, but through dialogue, allowing individuals in other cultures who it seems to me are being oppressed by certain cultural expectations, that we find ways of increasing the freedom of individuals across the world, respecting local custom. But I think, you know, particularly with women's issues around the world, I think there's a, a way in which as many critiques as we might have of the West, liberating women is probably a, a, uni a truly universal human good. Women are not just here to make babies. And I think many traditional societies continue, you know, I don't, I don't want to be overly generalizing, but I think there's, a, there's room for, even with this critique of the cosmopolitan universalist liberal outlook, to lift up individuals because of a, a shared human sense in which that is good, right? But this is, a, this is a conversation that will take decades to work out even after we've established that we need to have the conversation and we need the spaces in order to engage. But it's, we need that balance, you know, yeah, between the local and the cosmopolitan. Some people are talking about cosmolocalism and that's interesting, but it's all very theoretical at this point. So the conversation is starting. I do wonder if Whitehead's philosophy can help. And I don't ask that in an abstract sense. I ask it in a concrete sense. Uh, when I've taught Whitehead in China, uh, and I've, I've done it a good bit, I've led workshops in China for young Chinese on Whitehead's philosophy, probably five or six times. Worked through process and reality to some degree. You know, it, it, we get even into the weeds. But what so attracts some of the young Chinese that I've known to Whitehead is that the emphasis on um, creativity and dialogue and as they perceive it expressing your own opinion hmm. and let there be multiplicity and and actually it's been about quite it helps them reclaim a kind of individuality and, and what they can otherwise experience as as a little overly collective <laughs> overly communitarian mm -hmm. you know yeah is everything family is everything family and 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 workplace, isn't there an I? Can I have an I too? And they hear Whitehead saying, yes. And the odd thing is I come back to the United States and I hear Whiteheadians and they say, it's all about community. It's all about relationality. It's all about you know, overcoming the solitary ego in the sense of a connectedness with something more. 
And it's made me wonder, well, that's true too, but in a way, you're, that's your problem. That's our problem. <laughs> Individuality turned into a, a cult of individualism. But I'm not sure that's everybody else's problem. So how, how might Whitehead's thought actually speak to both the needs for relationality, cosmopolitan consciousness, that kind of thing, and for the need to say I, yeah. to be an individual? Do you think Whitehead speaks to those two sides of life? Or what, what's your thought? Definitely. I mean, the relationship between individuals and communities is a dialectical one. Mm -hmm. And Whitehead's process orientation is is deeply dialectical and so when we think about what it means to be an individual in whitehead's cosmology a human individual and i i am already a community of occasions of experience right and maintaining my integrity as an individual requires maintaining the integrity of the community of me right from moment to moment there's a profound lesson in that we can generalize from just the psychology of maintaining a sense of personal identity as the community of me. We can analogize that to human societies at large and say, okay, how do we maintain this together? A shared sense of identity. And the sorts of cross-cultural dialogue that you're engaging in with people in China who want more me and people in America who are so sick of the self... <laughs> I think that's the sort of dialectical engagement that will allow us to figure out how to hold the tension. It's always going to be a tension. That's where creativity comes from, is that tension, right? Between the individual and the community, between the local and the global. There is no finished solution or set of rules and protocols that will allow us to solve this problem once and for all. It's always going to be an ongoing dialectic. And... Um, I think there are probably some metaphors from improvisational jazz or music here that can help us understand how to cope with such an unstable situation, but nonetheless continue in each moment to achieve a kind of harmony. Cross-cultural dialogue is essential, though. So that's, that's, that's probably the site in between any of the settled habits of particular societies where we're going to find our way forward. That's very valuable, Matt. And I love your phrase, community of me. Is that your phrase? Uh, I think I just made it up, but I might have read it somewhere. I don't know. Well, I sure like it. That's the first time I've ever heard it. It's, 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 it's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that comes from reading Whitehead. And also, I think there's probably some James Hillman in there, if you're familiar with his work. <laughs> should be. Yeah, should be. Should be. Let's turn to one last topic, if we can. I'd like to talk about the planet and the web of life on Earth and the call to include within the wide side of our consciousness a sense of planet loyalty. Loyal to the, to the human, to be sure, and to the more than human. So John Cobb calls that Earthism, and, and he thinks that the spiritual tradition of Earthism, which has many faces, is the primary competitor today to what he calls economism. Mm which is organizing life on the basis of economics. So he, he truly thinks we should organize life as best we can out of a sense of planet loyalty. And he thinks our survival depends on it. He, he doesn't think this is just would be a nice thing. He, he truly thinks that we're on a train headed toward a cliff, a disaster, and the only real option is Earthism. 
I'm going to assume that you're about earthism, that you favor earthism, Matt. Uh, if you don't, you, you're free to say so. But if you do, do you see much hope for it? Do you see it aborning uh, in our time? Um, do you see something like that being born or not? And if so, is it is it too late or not? Yeah. I don't say this lightly, but I... I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so often we don't realize what we have until we've lost it. And I think the earth, the earth community, Gaia is very resilient and we can really, and have messed it up, but it will recover. The good thing, the good news from the study of the history of the earth is that after each of the five prior mass extinctions, a few million years later, more diversity of life emerged. It's an incredibly resilient community that we're talking about here. That actually, you know, when you step back and look at evolution as a whole, it thrives on adversity. And so that's not to say full steam ahead. And I would even, you know, to follow up on your metaphor of the train, we've gone off the cliff. Let's, let's be honest about it. Right now, if we're serious and honest, the challenge is to build some kind of a softer landing pad for the crash that's coming. It's almost hospice work. Something's going to die. And so we shouldn't be naively optimistic about what's possible at this point. Because despite all of the warning bells going off, scientifically speaking and, and geopolitically and socially and all the ways that many of our geopolitical crises and social problems are downstream of an ecological, the ecological catastrophe. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I do think when things have gotten bad enough that the elites can't pretend that everything's going to be okay or that they can remain insulated. And I don't think we're that far from that point, actually then we will start to see change. Only when it's clear that business as usual cannot continue. And so, you know, James Lovelock, uh, who developed the Gaia hypothesis with Lynn Margulis and others, he, I don't know what his current point of view is. Um, I think he's still alive, he's over 100. But I think a, maybe a decade ago in one of his books, he was saying that, uh, you know, maybe by 2100, after massive devastation, after a large portion of the human population has been wiped away and there's a few hundred million people left, we can begin to rebuild in the northern part of the planet where the climate will still be bearable and then have a kind of Earth-centric worldview, learning the lesson of the industrial catastrophe. And so I think it will get worse before it gets better, but I do think human beings will survive. And I think now, in addition to the work of building that trampoline to catch us, you know, when the train that's already off the cliff approaches the, the ground, we can plant the sort of philosophical and spiritual and cultural seeds that will help people to rebuild. But I, I, I don't have hope that we can save the present civilization, nor do I know that we really want to. Mm -hmm. And it's the current structures and systems are so far gone that they're, they're just 
literally blind to the crisis, the mm. capitalist economy can't see the collapse of ecosystems. It doesn't even register, right? And if it does, the solution is we'll let the market find this, the, the technological fix. And in that kind of a situation, I mean, there's just so much momentum and money and power. We're not going to stop this train. So I'm pessimistic in the short term, but optimistic in the long term, I guess. In the short term, I hear what you're saying, so I'm, I'm not going to argue against that in the least. But you do get up each morning and you do have s- seeds of, of hope within you just to get up, actually. <laughs> I, I think there's always a fresh, there's some possibility. What gives you hope? even now, in light of that scenario for the future? I think that there is a divine power at work in the world. It's not omnipotent, but I feel the divine desire that's trying to break through into our creaturely experience. And I know that 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 lure, that, that divine lure is present in everyone not just the humans, everyone. And I trust it. And I know that there are ways in which this sort of a statement can seem insensitive, but I really do believe that Whitehead was right, that the best we can hope for is tragic beauty because we don't live in a perfect world. And thank God, because that would be boring. (laughs) It would. Evolution is a struggle. And I, I admit... I've led a pretty privileged life, but I think I'm sensitive to people's suffering and I think the evolutionary struggle is worth it. And so participating in that process, even if it seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better for humanity, I participate in that evolutionary struggle because I I think it's supported by this divine lore and I think that all those who are struggling to contribute goodness and truth and beauty to this journey, that that effort is not wasted and it will contribute to what is manifest, even if I don't live to see it. You know, in um, Whitehead speaks of a kingdom, not of this world, but nonetheless experienceable in this world. And it's in moments. I'm talking about part five of process and reality when he talks about love uh, operating in quietness i think it's there later where he speaks of a kingdom not of this world but if he doesn't i will (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so i wonder if in the moment in certain moments there is a kind of taste in a rich way of what whitehead would call the consequent nature of god and that may well be a tragic beauty but it is a beauty and i wonder if it comes in small ways sometimes Music, friendship, a meal, a moment. If you don't taste something that's also divine, not not simply a lure toward the future, short-term or long-term, but a kingdom not of this world in the immediacy of the present moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll bet that gives you hope too, <laughs> at yeah. some level. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. It reminds me of something that uh, I teach a course on Goethe and Whitehead, comparing their perspectives. And Goethe, who was a student of Spinoza, and he gets this from Spinoza, says that he finds God in herbs and pebbles. 
the small things, right? You know, rather than looking for God in largest scale things that one can imagine, it's like, no, you have to do it wow, that's in great. the smallest things, you know, each moment. Yeah. All the little particulars that often just get trampled on and, and stepped over. There's God in that. And if yeah, you pay yeah. attention, you'll see it. Well, you've sure given me a lot of things to think about. And you've given me two wonderful phrases, uh, the community of me, which, uh, and also the herbs and the pebbles. And that, that can be a metaphor for where we end up. Not the community of me, but the herbs and petals, mm-hmm. pebbles. Yeah. But thank you so much. Uh, your comments have been so wise, so astute. And uh, I hope that they're helpful to a lot of people as they are to me. And I appreciate it. No, thank you so much, Jay. I, I'm, I'm really glad to have this space to, to have this conversation. And I appreciate your thoughtful questions and uh, the sort of dialogue that you've invited here. So yeah, I really hope it's helpful. It will be. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.